Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So how familiar are you with HTTPS? Vaguely. I will say that when I got onboarded with some of my missions at NASA, none of them were running uh, certs in any capacity. So for the past seven years of working with NASA, I literally run all the certificate authorities for all my missions. That's lovely. In fact, we should probably do an episode specifically about uh, certificate authorities and trust relationships. There's actually a couple of pretty interesting stories in there. Today, I want to talk about HTTPS as a protocol um, and what we've been used, why it's TLS instead of SSL and stuff like that. So when do you think we started using HTTPS? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say, when the hell was Angel Fire? That's like circa 2000, 2004. I'm going to say HTTPS probably, God, knowing how the things were, 2015. <laughs> Um, well, I think that we finally may have gotten it right, right around them, but, <laughs> but actually HTTPS started because Netscape released it. Not really? Yeah. Um, so I remember that, they had a browser. <laughs> well, the thing is, the reason they could do it had to do with the fact that not only did they have a browser, but they also sold a web server. This was in the days before Apache was really Apache. They were like Apache was just or Apache was based on a, I think, a Lawrence Livermore HTTP server. Mm, okay. um, so it was very early on. In fact, we'll turn to talk a little bit about how Apache became able to uh, serve up HTTPS as we go along. But uh, Netscape's original model was sell you the browser for a reasonable amount of money. It was about 40 bucks back then. Um, I actually remember stocking them on the shelves of Best Buy back in the day. Um, uh, back when you could go to stores and buy like software in boxes. Yes, but the reason that they originally went to the free to download browser is because they were trying to make their money on the server side. They were trying to sell the servers. Mm, okay. Um, anyway, it was introduced in Net by Netscape in 1994. and was created by a Dr. Tahir El-Gamal. Uh, who is known as the father of SSL. Uh, Wait, El-Gamal. El if you remember, if you were thinking about the Diffie-Hellman El-Gamal um, yeah. key exchange, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the El-Gamal from that. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Turns out uh, Dr. Hellman was his uh, thesis advisor for his doctorate. Oh, so nice. okay. he and Whitfield, Diffie, and, uh, and, and, and Hellman all knew each other and were kind of one of the, the major pillars of modern digital cryptography. Right. Um, and he worked for Netscape, and he, and he was the guy who made SSL happen. 1.0 was kind of a, a toy. 2.0 was what it was released as okay. back in 94. Um, there was a lot of security issues with 2.0. There were some weaknesses where 
they did some reuse of encryption keys because it used MD5 built into it. Uh, some of the, the ways that hash forgery works is by taking a message that you know uh, that you have a known hash of and extending mm. it. I mean, there's, it's trickier than that, but that's the basic idea of how, of how you do a hash forgery because there's a couple of ways of breaking a hash. Uh, mm, okay. Full reversal, we haven't been able to really do, but creating two pieces of, of plain text that hash the same way is kind of the most common way of attacking a, um, a hash. You thought you talking hash collisions? Yes, this, this is engineering a hash collision. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, that has been weaponized to forge certificates in what will probably be another episode. Um, <laughs> oh, well, actually, there was another problem. Was, 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 uh, there was no protection from uh, termination of tunneling. So it allowed for a connection downgrade to plain text from, uh, from, from SSL if a man in the middle was able to terminate the, uh, the connection and have it resume. Uh, okay. Um, and you should keep your mind on the whole connection downgrade because it's going to come up again a lot. <laughs> um, uh, so, and uh, certificate use, uh, because of the way that they did their naming standards, was limited to one HTTPS service per domain. Really? Yes. In about 96, Netscape released 3.0. Uh, they added SHA-1-based ciphers. They solved some of the MAC problems. Uh, there was some reuse of encryption keys between method message authentication and actual encryption, and, and SSL 3.0 got rid of that. But all of the ciphers that were included in the SSL 3.0, MD5 or SHA-1, RC4, DES, or triple DES. There were a couple of weird protocol implementations that were rarely, if ever, used. Mm -hmm. I think I vaguely remember, because I did teach quote unquote, taught uh, cryptography for like a little bit at the uh, the one university I was teaching at, which was me basically scrambling to learn cryptography and showing YouTube videos on how all the math worked because I do not do the math. So I was like, here's a YouTube video of colors to explain the Diffie-Hellman exchange. Yes. Well, actually, I think that the some of the exchange stuff and, and um, some of the information about things is pretty important, but I don't know that you necessarily have to understand how an S-Box works. Um, no, not at all. <laughs> we should probably do something about, uh, about crypto in and of itself. I, I've given that lecture often enough to, <laughs> to people. Um, but in the 90s, if you, wanted to, if you wanted to have HTTPS or you wanted to really do any of, the, of, of this encryption implementation, all, the, all of the software libraries were commercial. And then... Uh, Two guys named Eric Young and Tim Hudson created the first SSL project, SSLEA. They, the two of them, went to work for RSA Security, the folks that make the tokens. Yeah, you might notice that's the same as our RSA asymmetric cryptography. That's not a mm -hmm. coincidence. It's the same folks. And oh, okay. in fact, the uh, yeah, I was wondering about that. Not to, again, not to go too detailed into it. The way that the one-time codes work with RSA tokens is related to the same asymmetric cryptography. Uh, they have to have a timing chip in the uh, in each one of those tokens to keep yeah. sync so that the server on the other end can use the same time code to, uh, to figure out which what your code input was. But it all uses the same, it all uses related math, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is why when RSA got hacked several years ago, it, it was potentially breaking all of those things. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm sure, I don't know about like the other government agencies, but NASA, I mean, we still use RSA tokens a little bit now. Mm-hmm. We've moved away from them, but definitely back like seven years ago, that was like everyone had RSA tokens. Well, the thing is, you say that everybody's moved away from RSA tokens. They might have won't moved away from the tokens, but your Blizzard um, authenticator, your Steam authenticator, mm-hmm. uh, the authenticators we use for, uh, for uh, the Google authenticator are all more or less based on the same technologies. Yeah, yeah. So we might have gotten away from the tokens, but we didn't get away from the technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. We just loaded the tokens into our phone. Exactly, which is actually nicer for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But just a few days after those two guys went to work for RSA, Mark Cox, Rolf uh, Engelshaw, Stephen Henson, and Ben, ben Lurie, and uh, Paul uh, Stutton uh, started a fork of the SSL EA code called OpenSSL, mm-hmm. okay. which has become kind of important. Yeah. Um, it's the underlying crypto library for an awful lot of stuff, uh, including OpenSSH. Um, and that's what allowed Apache to start serving HTTPS. Now, back in those days, and until more recently than you might think, you could have one HTTPS service on port 443 uh, per certificate. Uh, their host names, virtual servers that you're, you might be used to in HTTP were not possible in HTTPS. Uh, until mm. much later, until uh, some stuff that was incorporated into, I believe, TLS 1.1. I wasn't able to find okay. exactly which one, so I'm not sure I can swear to that. But uh, that was this, one of this the... This is like a, like a walking uphill both ways in the snow, like like old web developers. And like, back yeah. in my day, we only had one HTTPS server. Well, I, I guess some of this, is, the reason I talk about some of this is that there was a lot of engineering headaches that they built in by not thinking all the way through the uses of the protocol. And I think that you'll get a lot of recurrence of this kind of thing of either that or uh, protocols being used in ways that nobody ever expected or intended. Um, because a lot of the the big, most important protocols in, in the internet, DNS, HTTP, uh, and SMTP, were invented in the founding of the internet, what I like to call the dark days of Unix, but in a lot of ways that they actually predate the- uh, Back before we knew everything was gonna yeah. blow up like it did, like back in the day when they were like, you know, X amount of uh, address space for IPv4, it'll be fine, we'll never grow beyond that. And now yeah. we're like, uh-oh. Yeah, actually, uh, um, Vince Cerf issued a mea culpa uh, Saying that, saying that that yes, he was the guy who made the decision of going from of, of 32-bit addresses versus 128-bit addresses oh, for really? IPv4, <laughs> and he made the wrong call. <laughs> nice. nice. And Vince Cerf, uh, for anybody that doesn't know, is one of the people. He was the pro- the DARPA project manager uh, for the the DARPA the original DARPA net. Uh, right. So he's one of the people that actually invented the internet and. To be fair, he gives credit to Al Gore for being their legislative champion in Congress. So the whole Al Gore didn't invent the internet. He more or less said he might have been a little braggy, but he was more or less said that he was he championed it in Congress. And Vince Cerf, the guy who had as much engineering influence on on the founding of the internet as anybody did, has said, "Yeah, it's pretty much true." Yeah, and I mean, also Al Gore hunts mammoth pigs on his uh, his time off, so. Kudos. Sure, that's ecologically friendly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so 
RFC 2246 released um, version one of TLS uh, in January 1999, authored by uh, Christopher Allen and Tim Dirks. It was an EITF working group that had been more or less working kind of back and forth with industry, between industry and the EITF for since actually the 80s. Uh, 86 is, is the date that I saw, but there isn't a lot of great documentation on exactly what was happening. Uh, but uh, Tim Dirks later wrote that in these changes, renaming SSL to TLS was a face-saving gesture by Microsoft, so it wouldn't look like the EITF was just rubber stamping Netscape's protocol. <laughs> uh, but um, remember how I said downgrading? Well, downgrading mm -hmm. to SSL 3.0 was defined in that protocol, and that, okay. it, and that led to some of the, the major attacks that happened to TLS over time, because we knew SSL 3.0 was weak, mm -hmm. um, and that we could do various things against it, but we never really engineered it so that folks couldn't downgrade to SSL 3.0 to create a, the weakness that you could actually break. Right, um, right. So let's go through the attacks. First, there was Beast, presented by Tai Dung and Juliana Rosaro in September uh, 2011 at Echo Party in Argentina. It attacks the the cipher block chaining implementation in uh, the DES AES based cipher suites that created a man in the middle, or so a man in the middle with an agent allowed the attacker to decrypt the cookies in the transaction, which would allow for the decryption of the session security tokens. Mm, okay. But it, the server side wasn't affected at all by the man in the middle. It was entirely an attack on the client. So Nothing you did on the server, it wouldn't be apparent on the server, and you couldn't uh, basically configure your server not to be vulnerable unless you didn't allow for SSL v or yes, SSL version three at all. Mm, okay. And then you had crime and breach. While originally uh, theorized by Adam Langley at uh, Black Hat, it was demonstrated by Tai Dung and Julian Rizzo since September 2012 at. Echo Party in Argentina. Same guys, one year later, new set <laughs> like, of- Surprise, we got a new thing. <laughs> exactly. It was, it's essentially a known ciphertext attack to again, uh, exploit revealing cookies. It was a little bit less intensive to exploit. Uh, to exploit. It, both the beast and the crime breach attacks were, um, like they were real, mm -hmm. but they took a fair bit of infrastructure to uh, to actually exploit. You needed to have a man in the middle and you needed to have some kind of browser agent running. Now in the world of okay. JavaScript, that browser agent is just kind of a lured browser cross-site scripting kind of attack. Yeah. But you still need the man in the middle. Um, right. It took a lot to kind of make happen. Then there was Freak, CVE 2015-0204 that caused downgrades so, uh, using a man in the middle attack to influence Cypher Suite selection to downgrade to um, export compliance suites that used weak cryptography in order to, to make export compliance. Things mm. like uh, that required uh, RSA key use of uh, 512 bits or less. Right. Um, so this was another downgrade attack um, and they were able to do it in part because weak Cypher Suites were allowable Cypher Suite election. Mm -hmm. Then there was Drown. <laughs> Uh, March 2016, uh, CVE 20, uh, 2016, uh, 0800, 
attack causes a connection downgrade to SSL version two. And then there was Poodle, uh, <laughs> announced in December 2014, credited to Bodo Moller, Tai Dong, uh, and uh, Christoph Kotowski, uh, of the, uh, which are the Google security team. So we see uh, uh, Tai Dong again. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, I remember this time period because this is when I first like started uh, working heavily in NASA, like the security side of things. And I yeah. just remember like the snowball, like just rolling, like yeah. uh, there's a TSL TLS of vulnerability. Oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> D- DJ Khalid. Uh, doing, uh... Yep. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or, is it Khalid or Kali? Uh, I don't know. He says his name enough because he's a Pokemon, just like Jason Derulo. But I can never remember what it is. <sighs> And now I feel bad about that. Um, uh, but if, in that, if he's yeah. listening somehow, I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll mispronounce it another yeah. time. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, so from that era, 2015 to, or, sorry, 2014 to 2016, just like you said, there were a bunch of these vulnerabilities. And we ended up having to, on the compliance side, talk to a lot of administrators saying, Hey, you need to check your SSL configuration. You're, 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 you've enabled all of these protocols, and mm-hmm. so through that time, so Manager Browsers announced the complete deprecation of SSL 3.0 in the fall of 2014, and um, PCI recommended the complete deprecation of TLS 1.0 in June of 2018, and the Major Browsers deprecated 1.0 and 1.1 by March of this year. So even mm-hmm. though we're talking about some really old stuff, some of the stuff didn't really get taken out of things that we need to worry about until fairly recently. Uh, it took 20 years to go from SSL 2.0 being released to major browsers stopping use of SSL 3.0. Yeah, yeah, I remember reading like one of the major factors is like you still have like grandmas and grandpops and parents using like how Netscape on some computers where like they don't support these newer versions and they can't be downgraded. So they didn't want like, you know, Mm -hmm. grandma to suddenly not be able to use Facebook or Google. That backwards compatibility problem. And I don't have a name for this phenomenon, but you get this, this problem that um, technology keeps cycling until Mm -hmm. there's a large enough adoption base and then it just gets too hard to move forward this happened here where it took a very long time to remove a lot of the cipher suites and protocols from use and even still we still have allowable sha1 based uh ciphers and, and and things like that yeah i mean this was an issue like my first degree was in private design mm-hmm. and it was always an issue of like when we were writing HTML like way back in the day, like still do your dimensions for like you know 800 by 600 CRT monitor or something like that, because people still use that stuff. And if you you know you don't incorporate that, it's going to look funky and janky on their screen, and they're going to hate it. Yeah, we have the same effect with SMB. Uh, a lot of the things in Windows file sharing, uh, Active Directory um, affects yeah. a lot of the things that are still at least possible to do in a domain and were up until five years or less ago um not def- uh, it wasn't default configuration to uh remove the ability to use smb version one active directory had been around for a decade before they they stopped uh by default storing the landman hashes mm-hmm. um yep 
in an effort to maintain compatibility or backward compatibility, you end up inheriting a lot of uh, a lot of security problems, either from downgrade effects, as we've talked about, or ha or allowing just a backdoor. In fact, there's a little tangent of a, of, a, of a story about the inclusion of a Gopher client in Java, allowing for arbitrary attack of services. Uh, that was patched up right about when the guy released it and talked about it in Black Hat. But uh, <laughs> it was pretty amazing that there was a Gopher client in Java that was just part of what Java did. And it allowed you to basically put raw packets onto any service you wanted. Oh, because Gopher had no, no header. Yeah. Anyway, TLS is, went through some major improvements. 2006, um, there was a new RFC released that uh, put into TLS 1.1, uh, uh, some of the, the CDC, the cipher blockchain vulnerability that, that, that was introduced in, um, that was introduced in crime, that becomes foiled by TLS 1.1 because they changed some of the cryptographic initialization and stuff like that. TLS 1.2 was mostly 1.1, but they deprecated the MD5 and SHA-1 based algorithms. They mm -hmm. introduced some uh, different methods for uh, for chaining uh, for cipher block chaining the uh, Galios uh, counter mode, which surprisingly enough, the foundation for how that works is in my 1995 version of applied cryptography. They actually talked about. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so it's it's actually really interesting to me how relevant that book has maintained itself to be over 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, they they added some elliptical curve into the key exchange and asymptotic cryptography stuff. Some of these were TLS one two, but some of them were one one. Um, so back to the um, the one service per port and IP. Right. Well, they introduced a service name header, um, S or what's called an SNI header. Um, and that you can specify a the name of the host you want, and it will apply a different. Uh, it will give you a different certificate and allow you to use different cryptography, um, even though you're running it on the same port. So there's some uh, session layer separation there that mm, just okay. didn't happen previously. If you've ever looked at a at an HTTPS packet, the SSL TLS encapsulates the entire HTTP header. So they had to move the host name thing into the TLS header um, in order for it to work at all. Right. Um, they also introduced something that was that was uh, that ends up being a, a little bit of a defense to at least some of the those attacks, but also has has some uh, real uh, privacy well security implications. Something called perfect forward secrecy. Are you familiar with this? I've heard the term. Okay, what it means is that even if the attacker gets all of the session and gets the asymmetric keys for the server, they mm -hmm. still can't decrypt the session. And this has to do with the ways that the way that the um, symmetric keys are nominated and, and chained together. But from the security engineering side, what it also breaks is any kind of SSL interception or HTTPS interception. Mm, okay. So if you're if part of your security strategy, and I think it should be part of your security strategy, is to is as an enterprise observing the uh, the, tra the outgoing traffic in HTTPS, right. you have to break perfect forward secrecy for that to happen. And 
it is possible for the server to require perfect forward secrecy. Ah, okay. And if your security strategy for services that you host also includes the same thing, and the server is required perfect forward secrecy, well, now it becomes very tricky to have any kind of intervening security device. You have to do all of your security at the at the HTTPS termination point. Hmm, interesting. No, I mean, even for as technical a podcast as, as we're trying to go for, that might be a little bit of too much technical gobbledygook. But, um, but uh, the third thing that was really important that was introduced in there is a feature called HTTPS session resumption. So when we're talking about HTTPS for actually all SSL TLS protocols, first mm-hmm. there is the asymmetric, there's a key exchange which happens with Diffie Helm, using Diffie Hellman usually, but there are other ways of doing it. Uh, yeah. Or you can just exchange keys. There are some cipher suites that allow that. We'll, we'll just say we, it's only Diffie Hellman and then we'll get a sponsorship. Yeah, if you want to do that, we have to do it, talk about RSA only because Diffie Hellman is <laughs> a standard. Um, well, actually, I think their, their patents might have run out. But asymmetric cryptography is, so then you do an, asy- you do an asymmetric exchange that gets your symmetric keys set. And then mm-hmm. the rest of the session, all the real data exchange is happening in that symmetric session. Yeah. Symmetric crypto is much less computationally intensive. And nowadays, our processors are even optimized to run AES operations. So I've seen the graphs where that show that, so folks would use RC4 to lower their, their CPU burden in order to not burn up their servers when handling tons and tons of HTTPS sessions. Mm. Um, turns out if you're using a modern processor, you're actually using less CPU to use AES than you were RC4. And RC4 oh, okay. has been pretty insecure for a long time now. Yeah, um, yeah. So you're using AES and your symmetric stuff is all low CPU, but you still have this asymmetric exchange. And mm-hmm. HTTP and HTTPS being what they are, every connection is unrelated to every other connection until you get all the way into the application layer with the session cookies and stuff. Yeah. So every connection, every element of the page that you're requesting, every resource that you're requesting is a different connection. And every one of those required an asymmetric exchange, which was computationally intensive. Mm -hmm. So some bright smart, and unfortunately I couldn't find out whose idea it was, came up with the idea that, hey, we've already done this exchange. Why don't we just resume from the point of the exchange because we've already done the handshake and when we have a symmetric um, key that will allow us to continue that session for a different resource or for a different request. Mm -hmm. That's basically what HTTPS session resumption does. Well, lots of folks thought this was a pretty good idea. It got included in browsers and obviously it had to get included into uh, OpenSSL. And a research associate at Munster University of Applied Sciences in Germany um, took it upon himself to include this in OpenSSL. I have his name, but I'm not going to put it on the podcast. Someone will have to do their own research if they (laughs) want to go and scold him yet again uh, about what happened. So he, he he put this function in, but when he did so, he used, um, and I didn't have time to find the exact, uh, source code, but he used some insecure string copy functions. Not the secure string copy, but regular string copy is the oh, way okay. I remember it when I when I originally wrote about this. So don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure this is how it went down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he basically introduced a buffer overflow into the HTTPS handler when it came to the session resumption. 
Mm, okay. And what happened was that what you could do with this was it, you could make a heartbeat packet to resume the session that would o- overflow the buffer, and then you could pull out an arbitrary amount of memory from the server side. Right. And it got into OpenSSL's code base. It got through all their code review. And because OpenSSL is leveraged by an, a very large amount of, of services that use SSL TLS, yeah. it got into an awful lot of stuff. Well, then Neil Mita of Google's security team on, at all dates, April 1st, 2014, found it. <laughs> as a vulnerability and reported it out and gave it the name that you might have heard, Heartbleed. Yep. So Heartbleed came out of SSL session resumption, which was one of the advanced features that was introduced uh, in an effort to improve SSL TLS. Okay, interesting, because I do remember when that came out, looking into uh, reading up a little bit on the heartbeat function and the buffer overflow, but I did not know the backstory and history and that some guy should have stuck with making monster cheese instead of adding code to. Well, there's reason to believe that that, that he's a pretty smart guy, but uh, he made that coding mistake. The problem is not as an open source contributor what he did in my mind. It's that the many eyes approach, the whole mm-hmm. idea behind open source software, failed us. And in fact, Google thought so. Uh, this incident was pretty much the reason, the genesis, why they started Project Zero. Oh, okay. <laughs> there are some really core open source uh, pieces of software out there that are used by tons and tons of people. In both of our government experience, we've seen things like Apache used all over the place, OpenSSL and OpenSSH used all over the place. Lots of things in Linux and not just Linux that are used everywhere. I mean, NASA notoriously has no budget because right. you know, we, we secretly use all of our budget to hide the fact that the Earth is flat and Australia doesn't exist. Um, but so I thought it was course, upside down due, due, due to a quirky gravitational... It, it takes a lot of money to, to fund the giant uh, fake sun up in the, the sky, the giant heat lamp to, to keep everything running. But yeah, like we use a ton of open source because we just, we have no funding. So, yeah. So my personal view has been actually that, that the government should fund a, an NGO just to do security audits and contribute back security patches to basically do Project Zero for a lot of these very large scale open source projects, make their way as far down as they can because it benefits yeah. the entire economy and it's doing something self-interested that that would help everybody yeah and i mean like we we rely on open source mm-hmm. so much and it's always a fun conversation with management uh we're going to use this open source project oh you can't do that open source is super insecure you should use this closed source all right well that's 15 to thirty thousand dollars a year uh, we don't have the budget go go open source there's a lot of analysis that shows that that a lot of the these the top shelf open source projects, the ones that we know or that we can all name off the top of our heads, are mm. at least as secure as, the, as their closed source equivalents. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's closed yeah. source, so we don't technically, you know, there's not like the many eyes approach. We mm-hmm. can't really see how insecure it is. It's just that maybe we just haven't found everything we could find. Yeah, so that's a significant part of it. And there are some vendors that 
I could name, but I don't want. I, I don't think it's necessarily appropriate to talk. We about need sponsorships, it. damn it! Oh uh, yeah, to pay our legal bills from that stuff. But yeah, exactly. But I, for a little while, I was kind of tracking the number of significant vulnerabilities and the and the companies that sourced to them. And for that period of time, the same three companies came up. And in fact, it was a very small set of software um, mm. that were just all of these really pants wetting um uh vulnerabilities and they'd fix some of them and sometimes they'd make an attempt to make them more a more robust fix of them but between keeping the legacy code or a legacy compatibility and various factors you just oh next month another month another vulnerability another oh if you don't update this thing your entire enterprise is vulnerable to some little bu- some little buffer overflow bug, kind yep. of. Thing. So you sometimes you have to go by the by the reputation of the organization. Um, there was a saying, and I again I have no idea where this came from, but you can't consider anything secure until it's been on the internet in the wild for five years. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a good philosophy. You can look at the the old Sendmail Unix. Um, mail service you can look at the old bind dns service both of which are in current use today mm-hmm. and they had they each had multiple years where significant vulnerabilities were found right you know back in like the 90s early 2000s kind of and if you just went by the number of massive of, of very worrisome vulnerabilities you'd be worried about using them but they've gone through their trial by fire and at this mm-hmm. point there's uh, not just where the code base is at, but the level of practice of how to use them has gotten yeah. to a point where implementing them securely is something that you can be pretty confident of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, there, there's my tale of two protocols, SSL and TLS, and <laughs> partly why nobody should get pedantic when some of us old school folks call it SSL instead of TLS. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my Heartbleed story. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't spoil my punchline by predicting what was what was going to be happening there. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs one on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.